Welcome to this episode of Bob Cooney's VR Deep Dive Podcast. In this series, Bob connects you with some of the leading innovators and thinkers in location-based VR. And so what's happening with VR now is like, like the big companies like HP and, and MSI and, and are coming in with, you know, high quality gamer, pro gamer grade gear that VR LBE companies are building and bringing to market. And I think that there needs to be a shift of thinking for the arcade industry because it used to be the computer was married to a cabinet. And those things were always together. And you could upgrade that cabinet to a new game like Golden Tee. Every year they would come up with a software update. You load it in a CD-ROM, and now it's downloaded, obviously. But And you get Golden Tee, you know, 96, 97, 98, 99, whatever. You go on for decades. But it was always a Golden Tee game. And you couldn't turn it into something else, really. Some manufacturers would do conversion kits. But for the most part, it was always a Golden Tee cabinet. And so, But now what's happening is, like, the hardware is abstracted from the content. They used to be tied together indelibly, and now they're totally different and they're abstracted, right? And so, you know, you could buy an HP backpack and you could load Arizona Sunshine on it, or you can run zero latency on it, right? And it's the same backpack. So as the hardware is now more generic, and I use that term not to demean the brands that are building great product, but just like it doesn't matter if it's an MSI backpack or an HP backpack or a Zotec backpack to the software, because it's all based on the same architecture, all of a sudden now that stuff becomes swappable. And I think that that's a different way of thinking about these things. There's separate hardware platforms from the software platforms, and then there's content. And now the next level of that, that disintegration is going to be the software platforms and the content being separated. And then once that happens, then from an operator's perspective, you have a a perfect world because I can buy the hardware from this person, I can buy the software from this person. And think about it, it's kind of happening that way in the VR arcade space, right? So you go buy the hardware from build your own computer, buy a computer, Dell, whatever, HP, right? And then you buy HTC Vive as the tracking system. And then you license Springboard or Synthesis as your platform. And then you license whatever games that you want. And all of that stuff is abstracted into a stack that you can pick and choose what you want. If you want to switch from Springboard to Synthesis because you like those, or back and forth because you like their features or price or whatever better, you can do that. If you want to change from you know, Beat Saber to Space Pirate Trainer, you can do that. And so you have all of this flexibility, and operators love flexibility. They don't want to be pinned in a corner. And so the early location-based VR stuff has been doing that. Everybody talks about turnkey solutions, and that's how you get a market going. And so, but what I'm starting to talk about with operators now is how do you look at these things differently and stop looking at turnkey solutions and how can you maybe pick this stuff apart? Now, don't go thinking you can sell it this way today if you're a solution provider, because this is like, this is new thinking for operators. It's going to take a long time for them to get their heads around this. All right. But this is kind of forward thinking of where I think this is all going to go and where it needs to go for the industry to thrive. And the other thing I've been thinking about is I went and looked at um, iFixit. And they have a teardown you know, of everything. And one of them was for the Vive Pro. And they gave it an 8 on a scale of 10 as far as repairability. Now, I know HTC and has a reputation of you know no parts availability, no this, no service and support. Game technicians. And what stopped, I was talking to the, the CFO of Betson, which is the largest distributor in the coin-op industry last night. And after my presentation, he said, you made me a lot more comfortable financing 
VR attractions for my customers because I was afraid of like, what happens if the company goes out of business? Who's going to support it? And I think now he understands that it's all just basically technology and with a torx wrench and a soldering iron, you can kind of fix anything. And so a quality game tech can probably fix an HTC Vive, certainly can fix a backpack from HP. In fact, if you look at this, um, if you go on, you just Google HPZ VR backpack maintenance guide and the full repair guide is online of how to do it. It's amazing. Like all of these tools are out there to be able to self-serve and support this stuff. By the way, I put Dave Myers on here. If you don't know Dave Myers and you're operating HTC products in the LBE space, go ahead and hit him up with a friend request. Tell him Bob Cooney sent you. Dave is a fucking amazing guy and he really cares about operators in the VR, LBE VR space. And he's been really super responsive. He went to IAPA last year, talked to everybody running HCC, found out that a lot of people were having problems with the Vive Pro and a piece of firmware. He went back to headquarters, talked to the engineers. A couple of months later, they had a patch and they fixed it. And so, so show him some love. He's been super responsive. Don't flood him. But if you have a problem or you just want to say hi, he's a good guy to know. And then the other thing I, t- I wanted to talk about is, and do you guys have any questions about kind of coin-op space and how VR integrates into that, go ahead and just drop it in the chat and we'll, we'll talk about it. But the other thing, um, this is a slide, this here on the left is a slide I pulled out of the, it was from VRLA in 2017, so I think it's the last year they had it. And this was from Qualcomm's keynote, and they were talking about the evolution of the cell phone and how VR is going to follow the evolution of the cell phone. That's Qualcomm makes the chips that are in the mobile headset. So things like Oculus Quest are based on this Qualcomm Snapdragon 835 chipset. And the new stuff that's going to be coming out later this year, specifically the Pico Neo 2, which we'll talk about in a second, is based on the 845 chipset. And then the one after that is the 855, and that's the game changer. When, when everything hits the 855, everything's going to change. So that's going to have 5G built in. But even the Pico Neo, I think they're going to do a 5G antenna with the 845 chipset, which is going to be interesting. But everything's on the 835 right now. So you get decent quality and you know, and it, not amazing quality. And Kevin Williams would disagree um, and say, that, you know, PC quality is still important. But anyway, this is where they're saying the transition from cell phones went to, you know, the original brick over to the smartphone. And I think the thing that they have the interesting here is they're saying, like, in 2017, they were here and they were going to be here by 2020. And I really questioned that at the time. And I think realistically, they've gone maybe from here to here in the last two years. And when you, you know, the two things they were predicting was rapid technology evolution, which we are seeing that, but also surging consumer adoption, which we are absolutely not seeing at all. And we'll see if Quest numbers get published and what they are, but I'd really be shocked if those numbers approach anything like um, a gaming console. And so I want to remind everybody of how long it took us to get where we are today in the cell phone industry. And obviously, the pace of innovation is accelerating, so these timelines will be shortened, but they're not going to be shortened from this to five years. And so the brick came out in 1983. Fun tidbit, 15 minutes of talk time, 15-hour recharge time, which I find hilarious. And it took 13 years to go from the brick to the StarTac. Right? And the StarTac was the first really cool, small, thin flip phone fit in your pocket. Everybody wanted one. They were super expensive. They're like 300 and something bucks back in 1996 dollars, which is probably like iPhone prices today. 
And then it took another 11 years for the first iPhone, the first usable smartphone to come out, right? So you're talking about from 83 to 2007. That's a long fucking time. And so to think that we're going to do this timeline from here to here in three years, and then maybe they're thinking we'll get to here another three or four years is absurd. It's a much longer timeline. This is a concept called macromyopia. It's what the Gardner Height Cycle is built upon. This shit always takes longer than you think it's going to take, but the impact is greater than you can ever imagine. That's going to be the subject of my third book, which I'm not going to talk about right now. It is called Being Digital, and hopefully it'll be out in 2020 or 2021. Anyway, so I also want to just kind of show you for some relative terms. Oculus Go shipped a million units in the first year. The same year that Switch sold 20 million units and the iPhone sold 200 million units. And so when you think about orders like, so the Switch is two orders of magnitude more popular than what was the most popular VR headset at the time. And the iPhone was another order of magnitude over that. So 20 orders of magnitude over the most popular VR headset. We have a long way to go for this stuff to become widespread consumer technology. That's all I'm saying. And I love the statistics. So Steam came out and said that the percentage of people using VR headsets on their platform doubled. Everybody was excited um, until you look at it, the number. It doubled from 0.4% to 0.8%, which is the same number of people running Linux. I don't know how many people you know running Linux, but it's a very small hobbyist community, which is the same size as the PC VR community. And so tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction. So always dig deep into the statistics and see what it really means and try to find some insights. And uh, did I say being, yes, being virtual, not being digital. Being digital was the inspiration for the Being Virtual book, which was written by Nicholas Negroponte in 1992-93, who was the founder of the MIT Media Lab. Hi, Kylie. And um, if you haven't read that, it was a game-changing book, and it was the first book that really talked about the impact of the digital economy and how everything was going from what he called atoms to bits. And he was right. He, like, he called Wi-Fi hotspots being everywhere in 1992 and nobody even knew what Wi-Fi was. And so we were all still on dial-up. So um, you know, my book is kind of a tribute to that. It's the VR version of that as well. What's the impact of VR going to be on everything? And um, yeah, some really fascinating research that I'm doing. So I want to show you a couple of, you know, this headset here. This is the Oculus Quest. This down here is the HP Reaver. But this thing over on the right is a new headset coming out from Pico called the Neo 2. And it's going to be the first, I think the first headset released um, using the Qualcomm 845 chipset. It's going to have all-in-one tracking. They're going to be adding, um, I think they're going to be adding hand tracking to it over time and eye tracking. And so, and Pico is a company you guys need to be watching. They are very, very, very responsive to developer needs. They're open to customizing firmware. And so if you're developing a VR solution and you want it in an all-in-one headset, you should be talking to the Pico guys. If you need an introduction um, to Leland Hedges, who's their head of BD, just drop me an email at vrbob at bobcrooney.com and I'll... Um, I really love those guys. And by the way, it's the number two selling headset in the world, believe it or not, mostly in China. They're the number two headset behind HTC in China. And so they do massive business there. And they're doing a lot of pushing into the medical vertical and the location-based VR vertical. And so, so what does all this mean? What do you do with this kind of information? And so what I've done, and this is kind of my pitch to, to operators and how they, can, they might think about 
how to select VR solutions. And again, if you're a solution provider, this is a lens that you can look at to say, all right, how do I need to think about how I position my product for operators so they understand how to look at me and compare me to the competition and how I can make sure that I'm standing out. So I think this can be useful for both solution providers trying to sell as well as operators trying to buy. And so there's really four things that I try to encourage operators to think about. There's themselves, and we'll talk about that. There's the attraction itself, which is what everybody focuses on, right? Their location, where's it going? And then this is the thing not enough people spend enough time thinking about is the customer. And there's a lot of um, complexity in customers and humans. And how do you think about them and how do you look at them? So I'm going to touch on some of this at a high level. And then in those intersections, there's like little nuanced things like, you know, what are the capabilities of your staff in running an attraction? Like, you know, if you're going to do something that's really complex or something really simple, depending on how qualified your staff might be or how engaged your staff might be, you know, the attraction and the location, like what's the concept? What is it? Does it, you know, how does it make sense? Same thing between the consumer and the location, where they go into your location, what's their context and what might they, they expect to see? What would make sense with them at a gut level? The way they, oh, yeah, I'll do that. That makes sense. That's why I'm here. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail. And then between the operator and the consumer, like what's your connection to the consumer? How do you think about them? Do you care? And I'm going to touch on a couple of those things now. So the first thing I'm talking to operators about is like, what's your technology temperament? Um, you know, are you an early adopter? Did you buy the first iPhone when it came out? Or did you wait for the iPhone 5? before you got on a smartphone platform? Or are you on Android because you like to customize everything and that pushes you even further up that kind of technology, uh, that comfort with technology. And so, you know, if you're selling a complex solution, you really need to, um, like, think about how do you talk about your technology? We talk a lot about turnkey solutions in this industry, but, you know, depending on who you're talking to, maybe a more complex solution would work for the right customer. And so really understand where you are in a, from a technology temperament standpoint. I think this is really important. You know, again, there's, there's Andre on the right. I still have a Palm Pilot 5 somewhere. Um, and if you're using any of these things, you can just like hang up now and go get an ice cream cone or, or something. The other thing I talk to operators about, so redemption is a big business, and I'm not going to get into redemption. There's these ticket machines. But where's your, where's your focus? Like, are you really connected to your customers? Do you care more about the customer experience than maybe your profitability on an attraction? And if so, then, you know, some of the business models in VR still aren't proven. And when I say proven, I mean, I'm not saying that no one's making money. I'm saying that everyone isn't making money consistently. Right? And if you don't understand why, if you look at a platform, and I'll use some of the bigger free roam stuff, like zero latency, for example, some people make money with that, people not, nobody knows exactly why. I mean, I have my own theories, but if you don't, that, to me, that's still not a proven business model. And a proven business model would be McDonald's right, or Starbucks. You can open it up almost anywhere it's going to make money. and You know predictably what it takes to be profitable. But some experiences in VR are so amazing that you might be willing to say, I don't really care if I make a lot of money. I don't care if I get my money back even. I just want to make sure I give the best customer experience because I want my customers to have orgasms. And the thing that I've told them to do is think about their payout on redemption gains. So redemption games, the ticket games, right? You can set the payout on these games on average over your whole arcade. And it's a really important part because, you know, it's a cost of goods. So if I take in $100,000 in arcade revenue and I pay out half of the money out in prizes, my margin is really thin. If I pay out 5%, my margin is really fat. The problem is there's a sweet spot there where customers feel ripped off. And that number is about 30% from what I can tell in talking to operators. And if you're on there, there are arcades that run at 10% payout because they don't care. 
Um, maybe they're in a tourist location and people are coming through all the time and they're never going to see them again. So they don't care if they feel ripped off. And so based on that payout, I was trying to get operators to see where on the line they might be. And if they want profit, you know, they should look at things like Rabbids VR, virtual Rabbids, because you can't not get that product, to be honest with you. I've talked to a lot of operators, no matter where they put it, it makes money. Jan, come here, say hi. <laughs> Come on. Want me to share a chair with you? Yeah, just come on. Sit down. Grab a we'll, – we'll, we'll do a butt cheek each. Bob and I are sitting on the same chair. So this is Jan, CEO and founder of Virtuix, maker of the Omni Arena, one word. Did oh, I get it two right? Words, two words. It's two words. Do you have this with this? <laughs> Damn. Fuck. I never get it right. So what's going on? What's going on in your world? Good, You've just good, hired yeah. some new salespeople. We did. We hired uh, Lisa Chapman and Marissa Garris, two uh, industry veterans. We're very fortunate that they're joining our team. And they're both here. Yeah. Uh, we just gave a short presentation here at the, at the gala. Yeah, we're off to a good start. You know, we're rolling out our arenas now at rapid pace. Uh, we're installing uh, one right now, actually, a new place going up. Yep. Uh, so we're rolling them out. Results so far are good. Come on in. Ah, come here, come here, come here. We're having a party. Hey, man. So Michael and, and oh, Sylvain from uh, from hey <laughs> from uh, what what's your company called? Minority Media, makers of, makers chaos, of chaos, Jump, and Reclaim. Yes. So how's it going? It's going very well. We yeah. uh, we just got out of a very very interesting meeting. We missed your your. Oh yeah, we just did it. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. So you want to tell us about the meeting? Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good meeting. Very good meeting. Let's see you yeah. so uh, We're going to cool. go, go catch uh, Chris Brady. I right, cool. will catch you guys. I'll see you tonight. Right, cool. So I want to go back to the, the new hires. Yeah. And so, because one of the things that I find really interesting, now you talked about industry veterans, mm-hmm. right? Now these two women were working for, was it M- one of the card reader companies, Embed, and they've been in the industry for more than 30 years. Yeah. Um, and so, so really interesting. You're seeing, you know, salespeople now, kind of jump ship over into the VR space from yeah, traditional amusement companies. And I feel yeah, like that's it, a sign it, of a tipping point. It's a great story too, because they both separately came to Austin to visit with, with us and yeah. try out the attraction. Uh, and they both, they both told me the same thing. They came to Austin, very low expectation, very skeptical. You know, Lisa, her son had told her, you're never going to like this. You know, why waste your time? Really? Her came. son said that. Her son How old's her son? Uh, 16. Maybe. Had he done the Omni? Not yet, but he likes it. He loves it. But he said to his mom, you're never going to like this. Oh, you know, because you're, you're your mom, you're yeah, old. Yeah. yeah. So they both came to Austin separately, and they were so impressed. They loved it. Yeah. Uh, and Marissa will say that she gets sick in a lot of VR, didn't get sick in ours. So yeah. That was a big point for her. Yeah. And then Lisa, she was just giggling and screaming like a little schoolgirl, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. shooting zombies. And, and, and separately, both were so impressed and, uh, with what we had and, and i think that I, I really just i think that it's so important because you know we talk about i talk about the crossing the chasm a little bit later mm-hmm. in this presentation and i feel like like these are points of evidence that we're hitting a tipping point and yeah. i can say this now that i just heard that raw thrills is going to be releasing a vr game at iapa okay and um and there i if you don't know raw thrills uh it's a company that was um, founded by eugene jarvis who's a literally legend in the gaming industry right he did defender for midway like he's been building arcade games since i was a kid um he must have only been 12 at the time because he looks really young <laughs> and raw thrills make some of the best um, arcade games jurassic park walking dead halo 
the new Nerf game. Like these guys, yeah. and they're partnered with Bets and Bets and distributes them. And I've heard rumors that they were working on a VR thing for a long time. And apparently, a bunch of the Bets and guys have been trying it out here in Chicago today. Yeah. What and, is it? Um, is it a, I don't know. A don't cabinet, know. A cabinet game? Don't know. Like, don't know. Uh, don't know. Virtual Rabbit style game? Yeah, I don't know. I think I don't know. Well, Virtual Rabbit is a game. It's a ride. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know they're going to try to add some interactivity to it, but uh, I'm not sure. But no, I'm sure this is a game. I'm sure it's a game. And um, yeah, and I hear it's going to be at a very aggressive price point too, which is interesting. And so, so I, I think these are all signs of tipping points for VR in the amusement industry. And so, um, yeah, and I think really experienced salespeople yeah. leaving big established companies to come to work for yeah. early stage emerging, though you've been around a long time for, yeah. in the VR world, but yeah. still in, you know, Absolutely. six years. And so venues that have more than one VR interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Pinballs in Austin now has three. So they have Rabbits. Rabbits, which goes a little bit different. Yep. But then they have ours. Ho- and Hologate. And they just added Hologate as well. Yeah. And they're yeah. all doing great. Yeah. They're all doing great. The cannibalization is not that high. Yeah. And certainly all of them combined earn more than, you know, individual pieces of the puzzle. So yeah, absolutely. And that's the other yeah. thing is like, I think oh. we're going from what I'm hearing is we're going, and I've heard other people say this, like I've been saying it since IAPA. I've written about it in replay, but now I'm hearing it echoed back to me, which is it's no longer I need a VR. <laughs> so we do still hear that, yeah, yeah. a VR. Yeah. I need a VR, and it's now which ones do I want? Yeah. And that's a sign of a real tipping point. So yeah. it's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Cool. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, well, thanks me, for uh, let me get out of your thanks show. Thanks for coming, coming and saying <laughs> hi. Yeah. Awesome. See you, everybody. That's the end of part two of this interview. Part three is up next. 